What's up, everybody? You're listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I'm Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we're, as always, excited to have you back again for another week of Chicago Film Talk. Uh, Connor, what have you been up to this last week? This last week, I've been, you know, having a... Work has been fine. The uh, winter storm, Mateo, just rolled through. Yeah. And people are, you know, people are still surviving, I th- as we're wont to do in Chicago. I did not know that they named winter storms. Oh, yeah now yeah apparently just like there's this guy mateo coming I'm yeah like, oh, okay and where's he coming from uh the arctic <laughs> yeah i guess the arctic circle absolutely uh, it did give me plenty of time to sit inside and watch movies so that was nice yeah what did you uh have you watched anything great lately or anything um, not great uh i rewatched the sweet smell of success oh yeah which is you know i love with with the post being out uh i decided to go and look at like some newspaper movies i love movies you know about newspapers yeah spotlight you know all the president's men and uh i gotta say uh probably my favorite one ever sweet smell of success because it's not like romantic about newspapers it's kind of dirty it's like a newspaper noir really yeah everyone's kind of a jackass and like (laughs) really just trying to get that everyone's got their own means to an end that there's an authenticity there yeah you don't see in the other ones yeah and i'm sure well it's not that it's not the rest aren't authentic it just uh is a bygone era of of journalism and newspapers back when like you know getting your name in a column was a huge deal right like the biggest thing you could do and it just revolves around that but uh yeah short recommendation check out sweet smell of success did you watch anything yeah i watched uh with all of this stuff that's come out about quentin tarantino him sort of being on the chopping block i decided to watch um the new kill bills those came back onto netflix i don't yeah. know if they left but i think uh, i think they got maybe re-added um after watching that video of uma thurman driving in the in the blue car you know one of those just iconic yeah. scenes that crash was uh, a very jarring thing yeah and so it's, i wanted it's weird to, to go back and rewatch those yeah i think it's important to yeah and, and understand um and re- I mean, remember that. I mean, we've talked about this in previous episodes that sometimes you you know don't have idols because right. people disappoint you. Just because somebody's brilliant doesn't mean they're not also you know a, a monster bad, yeah, or a a problematic. Person. Yeah, ex- absolutely, absolutely, Connor. Maybe we'll have to tackle that sometime in the future when we don't have a a, a brilliant guest who is not a monster. No. in our midst. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, we are so lucky to be talking to Michael Smith. Uh, he is a filmmaker. He is a film critic. He is a film teacher. He's a film producer. <laughs> he does he does it all and I think you are the first person we've talked to on the show that encompasses like the entire culture of film in that way <laughs> so we're going to be jumping into a lot of stuff uh he's got his new film mercury in retrograde it's going to be having a uh, limited engagement over at the gene Siskel film center that's going to be three showings one on the 16th one on the 19th and one on the 21st all in february and these the the reactions to Mercury in retrograde have been fantastic. Uh, Matt Fagerholm of RogerEbert.com calls it a remarkable film. Uh, Deborah Davy of Splash Magazines calls it beautifully filmed, a laser-like scrutiny coupled with artistic sensitivity. Uh, how how does that make you feel as a critic? <laughs> I was I was a fan of that blurb. <laughs> oh, for sure. That's going that's going to go on the autobiography. That's going to be on the on the inside cover. Fantastic quotes there uh the film follows three chicago couples at various stages of their relationships uh 
and they come together for this weekend. They're in Michigan. They're at this cabin and things kind of start out like this typical, you know, you might see this a lot. You might have experienced it going right. on a nice couples weekend or just a weekend out with your friends. And in this context of the woods removed from Chicago, removed from civilization, as it were. A lot of things start to come out, a lot of interesting personalities, a lot of kind of like these deep character stories and uh, things. They don't come out at face value. Let's say that. It's interesting how when you're supposed to be vacationing, especially with your loved ones, how stuff like that, you know, the animosities that you don't really talk about just sort of bubble up to the surface. Absolutely. And Mercury in retrograde covers all that. So, again, welcome, Michael Smith, to noco cinema thank you guys so much for having me i'm very excited to be here i'm a fan of the show so this is a thrill for me thank you so much michael (laughs) we really appreciate it so uh let's start with um your many tentacles into filmmaking and the the culture of film as i said you are a filmmaker a film critic and a film teacher which one came first you know i started off as a filmmaker and drifted away from it because I went to Columbia College back in the 90s when we were shooting on film, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I graduated from there having only ever shot and edited on film. I got my master's from Humboldt State University in California and then again, only shot on film, moved back to Chicago in 2004. And that was the worst time I could have graduated with a <laughs> film degree because every independent filmmaker in america was shooting digitally and i had no clue how to use those tools so i drifted away from film production um i just didn't know how to make a movie and so i started teaching as a way to do something that was related to film you know that would allow me to be close to this thing that i love and then i started writing criticism after i started teaching and then i think you know Writing about cinema and teaching it sort of made me fall in love with it again and get excited about it again. And then I ended, and then, you know, a few years later, you know, digital technology really brought the cost down. And then I ended up sort of drifting back towards it. See, that's something that's a common thread that we've had before. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and uh, that kind of moving away from film because of the, the, you know, the pressures. Yeah, the pressures and that early you know, 2000 shift to digital Mm -hmm. was such a huge moment. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, we, for Connor and I, uh, not to show our age too much, we grew up in the, we were there for the transition. We, when we were children, things were still shot on film. We would still go to movie theaters and things would be projected on film. But by the time we were old enough to really start to get into movies and understand how it's made, it was all digital. Exactly. You know, know, my dad had a digital camera at home and that was like, oh, so this is how movies are made. And we had to be retroactively informed that, hey, by the way, 35 millimeter is a thing. (laughs) It used to be really hard to edit and do all this kind of stuff color correction yeah. instead of being so uh, streamlined what was it like jumping back in with this more democratized uh cinema world well i started with shorts so i kind of dipped my toes in the water um, i made a short in 2009 called at last okima and that played some film festivals around the country and um and i you know won a few awards here and there and people seemed to enjoy it and so then i thought well i should do another one and then i made another short uh, a couple years later and the same kind of thing happened and then i just thought 
you know, after doing that a couple times, I thought I'm ready to sort of take the plunge and make a feature. And so that was Cool Apocalypse in 2015. Um, and that's a very modest film. I mean, I made that for no money and I shot most of it in my own apartment. <laughs> so my philosophy was, you know, if I'm going to make kind of a no budget digital movie i need to tailor the subject matter to the budget naturally yeah you don't want to go too big you know that sort of thing that is the problem i think that most independent filmmakers make is they're they're too ambitious and if you're making a movie for five thousand dollars you know you shouldn't try to do too much because then your movie's going to look bad Mm -hmm. but if you make a movie about you know people talking in rooms you know you can make a great film if the you know if the the talking is worth hearing true that and so you you directed this movie mercury and retrograde which will be showing at gene siskel you produced it and you wrote it correct and how was the how do you enjoy writing your movies and then trying to execute your own vision that's got to be difficult yeah, I like every phase of production. And writing is, I think it's fun. It took me a long time to figure out how to do it. Um, I wrote a lot of screenplays that, you know, nev- were never made and never will be made. <laughs> but um, eventually I figured out a way that works for me, uh, which is to not worry about plot or genre and just think about character and theme and come up with a structure. And so um, the writing process for me is fun. I, I like doing it. And it's it's a very solitary process. And that can be kind of lonely sometimes mm-hmm. because you have to spend a lot of time just staring at a blank page and thinking right but at the same time there's something kind of cool about it too which is that you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. you know you're that's the one time where no one you don't have to compromise yeah. because your imagination can go anywhere so i've learned to really embrace the fun of of writing and the the freedom that you have when when you do that and then you know the best part to me is actually production mm-hmm. um working with the cast working with the crew that's where the magic happens mm-hmm. you know it's in the collaboration because right. filmmaking is collaborative and then post production i is my least favorite part um in part because i don't shoot a lot of coverage and i don't mm-hmm. shoot a lot of footage so it's kind of tedious and what i've learned to do is just turn the footage over to an editor and say give me a rough cut right and that's and that's a difficult thing to one turn over something that i mean it's yours i mean from beginning to this point where you're like i'm just going to give it to this editor this is something that you've worked on and made very personal and that's very obvious when you're watching something like mercury and retrograde it has uh you know i feel like i am watching Michael's film. I'm watching yeah. something that isn't, you know, made by committee or something. While there is collaboration, it is a, a very work of sing, of singular vision. Um, and plus, do you, do you give it over to an editor to avoid having to really break with the editing process you're really breaking down the film into its most essential parts is that a scary thought or do you just want to have someone else take care of that? Well, I mean, first of all, if you hire an editor who's good that you trust, then it's, you know, then it's easy, you know, because 
the way I shoot, I don't, you know, there's not a whole lot the editor can do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and with um, Frank Ross, who, by the way, is a great director. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen his work as a, as a writer director. He's amazing. But uh, I, so I hired a director to edit this film and he, um, he told me it was the easiest job he's ever had. <laughs> yeah. So did, was <laughs> it just he, like straightforward and you just didn't, you said you didn't shoot a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the film. Um, we, you know, his rough cut was two hours and four minutes. Oh, okay. And that 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 two hours and four minutes without credits, and then we refined it together and got it down to an hour and forty two without credits. So we cut twenty two minutes out of it. Right. But um, you know, because I don't shoot a lot of coverage, there's not a whole lot you can play with it's more like everything is a block of time and it's either going to be there or it's not so it's it's about eliminating just cutting it down to what you know what is most effective and that's i gotta say that's pretty good to have the rough cut and then the final cut be pretty close 22 minutes i mean it is a lot in film time but still there's i mean there's directors out there like terrence malick who cut entire performances (laughs) from their from their films so that's i mean that's gotta be good for the editor his rough cuts are always four hours yeah exactly (laughs) which is which is insane to me i like this you seem to have a very economical look at filmmaking as you said you're not going out too far outside the realm of possibility with a low budget and you're doing you're directing and you're uh, making films that can just they can just work if that makes sense like watching mercury in retrograde i can see i can i can almost see from uh, just watching the movie the process of it was just like pretty straightforward you know it's people go to a cabin and you allow the characters to breathe and kind of go their own separate way you know have their own separate stories while also having this big i feel like i'm just i i'm in awe of being able to make that a film (laughs) it's uh it's a complicated one because human relationships like that are difficult. Um, writing this movie, it, it has a very naturalistic tone. Mm-hmm. Um, d- was there a lot of improv or is it pretty straight to script sort of thing? Um, it's, that's a tricky question to answer. I mean, I spent a lot of time writing it. We, I, I wrote it over a span of 14 months. And oh. during that time, it went through 10 drafts. So it was a very you know intensive writing process. But then... We shot it in 12 days, which was a very short, it's a very tight shooting schedule. And every day was a 12 hour day. Yeah. Um, But we didn't have time to rehearse in advance because a lot of our actors were flying in from other parts of the country. You know, Roxanne Mosquita and Najara Townsend uh, both lived in L.A. at the time. So they flew in the day before they shot their first scene. And uh, Andrew Sensenig, who plays the dad at the end, you know, he's (laughs) a great character actor. I mean, he's he lives in New York. So we flew him in for one day. And um, so we didn't rehearse in advance. And that was kind of new to me because with Cool Apocalypse, it's like we had local theater actors mm-hmm. and we were, I rehearsed with them for six days before we even, you know, started shooting. So we knew exactly what was going to happen when we when the camera started rolling. And with Mercury, the process was kind of similar except that we only rehearsed right before we shot while the crew was there. So that made it um, a little bit more, it made it more of a kind of like we have to capture lightning in a bottle. (laughs) Uh, And and that was, that was a little nerve wracking, um, a little nerve wracking in a way that was new to me, but it also made it exciting uh, and it made it fun. And so um, 
so the dialogue did evolve because these actors are all, I think, really incredible, and they all have a strong point of view about who their characters are. And, you know, they, and, and I told them, I'm not married to the script. If there's something you don't want to say or something you do want to say, let me know. So every scene that's in the script, you know, or, or every scene that's in the film was in the script, and the meaning of each scene was always the same, but the specifics of the dialogue evolved as we rehearsed and as we shot over those 12 days. Do you think that the end result is, with that in mind, more what you were going for, writing Mercury in Retrograde? Absolutely. That's the funny thing, is the actors, because I spent a lot of time talking to them about what the point of the movie was. We talked a lot about the themes. And even the actors who don't live here, like Roxanne and Najara, I would Skype with them and talk to them about their characters, and I would give them homework to do. And so when they showed up, they knew what the movie you know why why we were making the film and you know they they brought a lot to the table and ultimately yeah it's funny you say that because that was my exact feeling was we what they brought to the table made it closer to what my original vision of the movie was than what was in the script wow I love getting these behind the scenes kind of views into these things because the to hear that it was such a tight uh, recording process, the movie itself is very it takes its time in yeah. uh, developing what the you know point of the movie is and it seems very relaxed. Yeah. And to hear that it was twelve hour days with you in, know in twelve days in twelve sure. days. Jeez, it's funny. Everybody who has seen the movie acts shocked when they hear twelve days because they yeah. they know you know that. That's a lot of, uh, you know, they know that's not a lot of time. But the other thing, you know, aside from the script is, you know, we had a very detailed shot list. And I I think every director should have a detailed shot list. And um, that makes the process of shooting very economical. And I think that comes out in the film itself, because as Connor and I were watching it, the things that we remarked on most, aside from the relationships that we were watching unfold, was the look of the film. Mm -hmm. This is a very beautiful film. And uh, I almost wanted to say, you know if if you don't mind me uh saying a parallel yeah swanberg swanberg gets arty you know know, instead of this mumblecore thing where they're shooting on a macbook pro you know it's it's it was very intentional and it felt so it captured everything i felt like i was like oh man i'm at this cabin in michigan yeah uh what did you shoot on what did you guys go with in terms of the tech well, we shot it on the Ari Alexa, which is a you know very high end you know digital camera. But we, I think the thing that really gives it that that look is the anamorphic lenses that we use. We shot it in true anamorphic, and it's two three five widescreen, so it has a it's true widescreen, and it has that kind of soft cinematic texture. Right. And um, the lenses were Russian lenses from the nineteen sixties. Really? Now, now where do yes. you find those? I have no. I have no <laughs> You don't know where you got it? <laughs> I, I, oh, yeah. I, have, I had no, nothing to do with renting the equipment. But, but um, you know, the, I have to give a shout out to our amazing di- uh, director of photography, Jason Chu. He shot um, Stephen Cohn's film, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you guys have seen. Uh, and I was a big fan of the look of that film and especially the way he framed things because that's got a big ensemble cast. And the way he used the widescreen to frame 
frame like a lot of characters, I thought this is this is the guy I need to hire. So I approached him about shooting this film and it was a great we had a great working relationship do you have much experience working with ensemble casts because there was something the very beginning of the scene when they're going around and uh sharing the uh what is it the horoscopes yeah um that scene where everybody's sitting around in the chairs i i remember reading a like a film uh essay about how those scenes are some of the most difficult to shoot because it's like who are you going to be focusing on and how are you you know getting like how are you circling around this group of people oh yeah i mean the difference between shooting a dialogue scene between two people and a, a shooting a dialogue scene between six people it's you know it's daunting. <laughs> it's very drastic. Yeah. Um, but uh, that scene was the one that we spent the most time on. It took half a day to okay. get it. We we did eight takes of that shot, and um, I mean, it was hours. You know, it was hours because <clears throat> it's one take. There's no editing. The shot is six minutes long, and um, we had you know a camera crew of you know four guys and jason was the dp he was operating the camera then he had um, a dolly grip who's pushing the dolly because the camera we had circular tracks behind Mm -hmm. the actors and then we had a uh, our first ac was pulling focus remotely wow and so and while the camera is is dollying around the actors jason is also panning from face to face in order to capture you know the person he needs to be on so the the first ac is constantly pulling focus to make sure you know each person needs you know who who's in focus is in focus who needs to be in focus is in focus and so the choreography of all that was just insane yeah by that <laughs> by that final take was it just a huge sigh of relief it's like i think we got it this time i actually screamed out loud and and terrified everybody uh because the actors don't know you know it's like sure. it's like in addition to the technical challenge of making sure everyone's in focus and that the camera movement is perfectly smooth that there are no hitches then the other side of it is the actors have to say their lines sure <laughs> right and they have to be in what they're doing they have they're to be involved. in it and and so the, the actors are not aware of what's happening with the focus and what's happening with the camera move and then the camera crew isn't aware of what's happening with the actors it's like as the director looking at the monitor i'm yeah. the only one who has to pay attention to both things you're spinning both plates and right. yeah and it's like with the eight takes i you know we we were getting closer and closer every time and then with the eighth one that's the one you see i knew we had it so i i screamed everybody was <laughs> scared and then I, I i went around and i i hugged and kissed each actor Aww, that's beautiful <laughs> that's re- you know that's really hard see, this is why it. this is why you need to be listening to these kinds of things you wouldn't know this otherwise exactly well and and it it the proof is in the pudding you watch that that whole sequence and it's kind of the way you uh the way it's sequenced is you have the first half i guess the first part of that's of that shot happening before a little bit of explanation and then we come back to it and it 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 doesn't skip a beat you know you really get around and it seems it's continuous it's just keep going well that is literally the same take so yeah so I said it was six minutes. The original take was 12 minutes, okay. <laughs> which we did eight times. And then we, we chopped it in half. And in the script, that whole scene took place where it does chronologically in the story. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't supposed to begin the film. The film okay. was supposed to begin in Chicago with the shot of the skyline. Right. But as soon as we executed that shot, 
I wrote a note to my editor and I said, you should try this at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. because I knew that that shot is so, um, in a way, it's it's different than any other shot in the movie. And right. I felt like, actually, there were a number of reasons, but I just felt like it was the best way to, to begin the movie. And it is a really good scene setter. It gets a, it gets us introduced to the characters. It kind of gives us a little bit of foreshadowing, a little base knowledge of yeah. who these people are, how they're going to interact. And breaking that scene down a little bit more, especially in the cinematography, you mentioned that, you know, the uh, DP had to focus on who he needed to be looking at. And you can see if you were to pause at any given moment, it's almost like many different little shots made into this big single shot. And um, it just, it totally works. I mean, was, did you always plan on that being a single rotating shot or did that just happen? You know, I'll, I think this would just look cool. That's a good question, mm-hmm. and I have kind of a long, complicated answer. But oh, please. I th- give I us think, long, give us complicated. <laughs> I think you're going to dig this. So, <laughs> in the shot list, um, that scene when she when she's reading the horoscopes, I had originally written that it was going to be a close up of her face reading intercut with a close-up of each person listening as their horoscope is being read Mm -hmm. so it was going to start with her reading the horoscope then you were going to see a close-up static of the reaction and then after she was done there's kind of a tonal shift where the character of wyatt her boyfriend Mm -hmm. says so jack what's the plan for the weekend and jack says plan for the weekend we're going to drink some good drinks so in my shot list, I had the dolly move begin there because I wanted the scene to to I wanted there to be a, a visual sort of shift that okay. would accompany the tonal shift of of what they're talking about. And so it was supposed to be the second half of that scene where we had the tracking shot behind them. And what happened was the day we shot it the actors sat in their chairs and were rehearsing their lines. And while they were rehearsing their lines, then Jason was rehearsing his camera movement behind them. And he, he came up to me and he said, I think we should do the tracking shot while they're reading the horoscopes. It looks really cool. So I looked at the monitor and as they were rehearsing, I saw it and I immediately realized he was right. It looks better for that part of the scene because it allowed him to pan mm-hmm. and uh, from, you know, from uh, Peggy reading the horoscope to the, the people who were whose horoscopes were being read. And meanwhile, he's picking up all the other faces. And what that does, uh, I think, for the viewer is it forces them to really uh, lean in and pay attention to the body language of each character and to think about, you know, how these characters are relating to each other and what their body language says about their relationships. Yeah, it it definitely like embodies who the characters are, their reactions to the horoscopes. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, we tried to go into it a little bit blind, like we got your blurb about like kind of roughly what it's about but you know in the idea that's three chicago couples each in a different stage of their relationship but we we want we were excited to see who was who yeah (laughs) and i think that 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 tracking shot that going around and seeing their everybody's reactions to everybody else established that pretty quickly without being so explicit now you do get a little bit in the next scene uh the way that's edited you do get the explicit these two are together these two are together these two are together but i think for the viewer they already know who's who right 
when they when they start out and i really like that well one one thing that's been really gratifying to me is i've i've i know people who've watched the film twice and everybody says that they love seeing it a second time because they realize how much foreshadowing is in the first scene bingo and you know it's sort of like you know the horoscopes that she reads most of what she says sort of comes true for those characters yeah and yet um it's because the first time you watch it there's so much going on there's so much dialogue that she's reading fairly rapidly and because the the frame is always changing and you're looking at different people it's kind of overwhelming and i have had some people say that they find it to be disorienting and they think it's too much but you know i mean you know, I don't mind weeding those people out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I gotta say, I'm I'm more of a fan of the close read. Yeah, and and watching something one time versus watching something a second time, third time, fourth time, whatever, it's it's always going to change. And I like films that do that, that force you to pay attention to what's happening. Um, to compare, like, I'll give it a comparison to something like Logan Lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's a movie that it's if you blink, you'll miss it. Yeah, because they justify a lot of things ahead of time. They tell you these things but you're too i don't know drawn up in what's happening to really get it the first time and my girlfriend and i sat and watched it uh we had both seen it once we were watching it for the second time and i throughout the entire thing she was like oh so that's why this is why and even catching these scenes in uh on a second viewing i'm like oh so this is the you know such and such this is the blank this is why this character is what it is we know why but in at the very beginning but we were just so focused on trying to pick up all these subtleties um and i think the film really works in that way i want to jump into the writing of these relationships because i think writing relationships in film can be a very dicey process because you're trying to strike this balance between reality and drama because we walk into a movie we know we're going to see some drama some things are fabricated maybe pushed to a a little bit more of a heightened level but we also don't want to believe that it's so beyond the pale that it's unrelatable and i think mercury and retrograde captures a little you know captures that balance pretty well when you sat down to write this did you how did you feel about writing these three different stages of relationships that's the balance that you know i think that's the balance i always try and strike and i think a lot i think that's true for a lot of writers is you know you want whatever you're writing to have a point you know there has to be a meaning to it and you're, you want to communicate something uh something about the world that you believe and yet um it can't feel contrived you want it to be naturalistic to the point where it feels like you know this is real so that is a balance I'm very conscious of trying to strike. And with this particular film, how I wrote it was I knew it was going to climax with a scene where three guys were talking about a book (laughs) (laughs) and that we were going to juxtapose that with their wives and girlfriends having a very different kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. So even before I knew who the characters were, before I knew what book they were going to be talking about, um, I knew that Juxt- that that juxtaposition and the kind of provocation that I wanted to go along with that, you know, that was going to be the climax. So for me, it was just a question of, okay, who are these people and how do I get them to this point? And something that I really love about uh, when I, whenever watching an independent film, the, the strength of the movie is in taking advantage of you, of the advantages that are like available to you. Right. So there's a, the scene in Throughout most of the movie, like you said, it's fixed. Is that the term? 
it was like a fixed camera most of the time Mm -hmm. and then in that scene in that climax when they're all drinking around the table it switches to a handy cam i want to say and that was uh that struck me right when it happened because I wasn't sure. I mean, I'm sure that it had been used previously in the movie, but that it's almost it almost reminded me of like the car- the camera is a character now, totally. and it's like it's getting drunk with the characters too, <laughs> and it's and it's following them and it's sort of staggering around and it's trying to like it's almost like labored under the things that that continue to has to follow i love you guys so much you are attentive viewers because that (laughs) that is exactly the phrase that i gave to jason i said jason i want the camera to feel drunk in the scene i said i want you to swing it around don't worry about things being out of focus you know i want the film to feel drunk and then i actually said the same thing to frank uh when he was editing i said you know cut this up jump cut it don't worry i said i want to hear fragments of um sentences i don't really care if people don't know what's what's you know what the context is of what they're saying and so yeah that was that was completely the intention the film gets drunk along with the characters <laughs> yeah and it yeah it works perfectly in it's, that scene especially because it's so emotionally messy yeah it yeah gets, I mean, it's messy it's, it's a messy and I, that's i i love that that was the initial point like you you were writing this movie and you're like i know this is going to be a thing that happens and i love that the the characters are working towards this this point this point of no return and uh especially the um the shot uh the shots in the bar for the women so mm-hmm. at this point if you, i mean you'll see this as you go to see mercury in retrograde this uh on the 16th 19th and 21st over at the gene siskel film center um and you even have that one of those shots up on the Gene Siskel Film Center as an example of the film. Uh, the the neon lights of the bar mm-hmm. and the colors, and it just perfectly matches the tone of everything that's happening. It feels very calculated. Um, do you think that that's the best way to do film is try to be as calculated as possible? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, there's, again, a balance between calculation and risk, I think, because you can't you know, you should plan as much as possible, but at the same time, you can't only execute your plan <laughs> um, because then there's going to be no life to what you're doing or or you're going to risk n- not capturing things that are magical because you're too um, preoccupied with the way it is in your head Mm -hmm. you know things are always different on paper than they are uh, when you're in a room with your actors and your crew and sometimes things can be better than the way you imagined them so sometimes you have to let go of your preconceptions but the thing you're talking about with the red lighting i mean that was in that was in the shot list it may have been in the script too because you know i decided that i wanted to use red in a kind of symbolic way and um if you watch the film again notice how there's no red at all in the movie prior to that except every once in a while it's associated with the character of peggy yeah right like uh in the beginning she's sitting in a red chair uh when they're sitting around the fire pit and it's the only red chair Oh, okay. <laughs> and she always has a little bit of red in her clothing like her bathing suit the bottom of her bathing suit is red and she you know you can see a red bra strap and then she puts on a red dress that night before she goes out and her hair is is red so this is like an indication that this is a scene for her like this is a a very big scene for her yeah and and to go along with the the idea of the film being drunk for the guys what i told jason was i said um i want 
it to feel when they go into the bar like the film itself is bleeding like a mm-hmm. wound has been ripped open and um what I showed him as a reference was actually the bar scene in Jackie Brown, oh, which wow. is also has that blood red uh, lighting. Yeah, that's right. And um, and that was, I think, useful for him. Absolutely. When you're doing the, you mentioned being in the scene with the actors. I mean, when we talk about directors, a lot of times uh, it's focused on technical, technical aspects of the camera or where you're putting certain things, the lighting. Uh, while there are people like, you know, there are people that handle that specifically. The director is in charge of a lot of that. But the, the director actor relationship, super important, very vital to the film. What was it like being with the actors developing the characters on screen, especially when we get to these extremely emotional climaxes. I mean, how real did it get on the set? Extremely real. (laughs) But, you know, this was the best cast that I ever worked with. And, you know, the better your actors are, the easier your job is as a director. Um, But it's very important to establish trust. So, that scene you're talking about the the bar scene we shot over two days and it was the last two days so the specific monologue that peggy gives and then um golda's response um that was the last day and um roxanne who plays isabel was not there for that so the stuff with the three of them we had done the day before and then roxanne flew back to la and then the last day it was just um Peggy and Golda, Mm. which was the most emotional day. And I scheduled that on the last day on purpose because I said, this scene will be its best if everybody knows each other really well. (laughs) Let's save that for the end. And so, um, so it was so emotional shooting those scenes that, you know, they they were crying real tears. You know, they were all cried out at the end. And that was the only day that wasn't a 12-hour day. We got all that in four hours. Oh go. Only four hours of intense crying. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> but it was, the, it was the hardest. It was the hardest emotionally. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I must confess, upon wrapping, the first thing I did was break down and cry. (laughs) (laughs) Those emotionally raw days, It was was hard to watch, you know? It was difficult to watch. Um, But uh, but those actresses left it all out there on the floor, and it was really just, it was amazing to witness as a director. And, you know, there's no real magic in terms of anything I say to them. I mean, it was all there on the page, and, um, you know, I, you know, Abbas Kiarostami has the best analogy ever which is that a director should be like a football coach you know it's like you you talk a lot in advance but once you're shooting you're just kind of on the sidelines Mm -hmm. and that's that's the way i was you know i was kind of watching them and cheering them on but it's not like i'm telling them what to do you know i mean alana arenas Steppenwolf Ensemble member. True. I mean, I'm, what am I going to tell her about acting? <laughs> <laughs> well, She's the expert. It, well, there's, I mean, it takes a lot of, um, you know, I, I don't know if humility is the word, but to like get out there and tr- it takes a lot of empathy and it comes through on the screen. I mean, saying that acting takes empathy is kind of a, dr- you know, that's, we, we kind of understand that. Yeah, but, come on, Tom. Um, <laughs> Maybe I need to take one of your classes. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's. I think that needs to happen. But um, why? Why write this story? I think I'm, I want to get down to that. I, why write this story? Why explore relationships in this way? Do you feel that you were? You know, is this something that hadn't been said to you, or you know, making this kind of movie that is going to really 
speak to some people i think that there will be people who see this movie that really connect with some of these characters and might see a little bit of themselves in them do you want people to have that cathartic experience of seeing relationships play out like that on screen i want people to get divorced after watching this (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i will not be satisfied until i hear about at least one couple getting divorced after watching it (laughs) i mean we two out of three here i think uh people i don't want to spoil anything but um there are some tough moments. Oh, there God. really are. There were some moments I, towards I, the end that I was like, I can't believe I'm watching this. Like, I feel, I, I feel voyeuristic. I don't almost. want Roxanne to be mean to me. That's, <laughs> yeah, she is a frightening she is character. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and she pushed, she pushed Kevin Webby to the point where at the end of that scene, that fight is so raw. Um, I don't know if you noticed, he's holding his hand. Oh in yeah. A, oh, yes, oh yeah. That was fist. brutal. That was the only take where he did that. And afterwards, he didn't even remember doing it. And I. I asked him, I said, I told him that I was terrified that he was going to hit her and he, mm-hmm. he didn't even remember hold, clenching his fist. So, um, you know, even though the words didn't change from what the previous take was, she, she had a way of kind of pushing his buttons. But no, I'm, I'm kidding about the divorce thing. <laughs> kind of. It'll, it, it's a uh, movie that will make people reconsider some things yeah, or look at their own lives. You know, I'm, I'm really interested in relationships and I'm interested in characters. So and I explored that in my first film, Cool sure. Apocalypse, right. but in a much more like, kind of lighthearted way. Mm-hmm. And I felt like there was a lot more material to mine in terms of that subject and i wanted to go a lot deeper and a lot darker and i felt like you know um i felt like you know in the modern world i feel like men and women have a kind of tragic inability to communicate with each other honestly a lot of the time and so i'm obsessed with that question of why why is that why is that you know why can't men and women see eye to eye and speak directly and so yeah the whole process of writing the script was really an attempt to um, explore that phenomenon Mm -hmm. and i'll I'll tell you something you know i wrote this in 2015 and um i never would have imagined in a million years that this movie would be released during this particular cultural moment of me too but i do think it might resonate in a way that it 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 um wouldn't have otherwise um because sexual abuse is without getting too spoilery i mean that is a plot point in the film and um i i wasn't you know trying to be calculating about that but i do think i was picking up on certain things in the air you know responding to certain things in the culture and um i hope this film will you know inspire a dialogue like i think it's i hope it's a great date movie and i think uh you know i want people to talk about it when it's over and i don't want them to just talk about the movie but i do want them to talk about their own relationships sure. and uh when i say i hope people get divorced i hope if someone's in a bad relationship sure that if they if they if they, if they find themselves identifying more with richard and isabel than they do with jack and golda then maybe they they'll want to rethink what their priorities are <laughs> and and to that point watching it i've had uh i had this great um just draw to to jack and i really i really liked him and uh goldie's relationship 
it was that that was what drew me into this movie a lot i saw a lot of myself in jack like not to disclose to i've been in a relationship for a fairly long time and um i really loved watching them develop and i almost found myself looking at the other two couples and being like yeah. <laughs> so come on. Get it together now. You've got these two beautiful, smart people together. Why can't you be more like them? Do you ever have audiences experience that where they're like, I really like these two? No, no, I think, you know, these guys are better. What does that tell us a lot about ourselves based on who we're identifying with? I, I think so, yeah. And I mean, Jack and Golda are, you know, they're the most likable characters. Um, right at least you know on the surface because they're the most mature right and they are the oldest i mean mm-hmm. the, the actors are a little bit older than the others they're in their 30s um most of the other actors are in their 20s and uh and they've also been together the longest so you know when i when i said earlier i was obsessed with this with coming up with a structure you know the, the the idea was you have one couple that's been together for a decade and they're happy then you have another couple that's been together for five years and they're deeply unhappy mm-hmm. and then the third couple just got together and you don't know there's a sense that they could go either way right. you know yeah. they could end up like jack and golda or richard and isabel and you know at the end of the movie, you have your answer. Exactly. And I like how the youngest couple is in the backseat in the car. Yeah. Then when it cuts after the horoscope scene, I liked it. It, yeah, it definitely it makes, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. It, it's, it, it feels right and it feels consistent with the characters. It feels right towards the idea that these are the newbies. These are, yeah. they are taking the back. They're just watching everybody else yeah. go. And also I, I told my producer, I said, you know, we need to get an SUV and there has to be a bench in the back and there have to be two seats in front of it. That was a requirement because I said, I, first of all, it, you'll be able to see everybody better that way but also the newly formed couple they need to be physically close to each other right and richard and isabel need to be separate right the visual of that tells you more than the dialogue well and isn't that so funny that the most practical and uh cinematic way to shoot that shot is also the one that makes the most sense within the story exactly i love that as that is crazy jack i i have to give a a shout out to jack newell i loved him so much in this yeah for me he was he really has a lot of heart on screen yep um how did you how'd you get him in this movie well uh i had seen him act before in his own film open tables Mm -hmm. um which he's very good in um and that's kind of an improv comedy and do you know who he is unfortunately this is no. the first time i've seen him and i i know he's had a, uh his time as a director he had 42 grams well, yeah which is a great documentary yeah. that just played at the siskel he's also the director of the harold ramus film school at the second city i well that there's where the comedy chops come yeah from. so he's <laughs> got he has an improv comedy background and um he he auditioned i mean with that that part was the hardest to cast because i the way the character was written, you know, he, I needed somebody who could be um, intimate with his wife and be utterly sincere, but at the same time also be a smart ass during the disc golf scene with the guys. And, it, yeah. you know, I could not find an actor who could do both things. It was like they were good at one but not the other. And then Jack um, 
we had a really good casting director to uh, a woman named Claire Cooney and she um, brought him to me and uh, and you know she suggested him and I said oh yeah I really like him and he auditioned by he submitted a tape sure so I watched him read both parts and I cast him based on that he yeah he really does have that balance of and I mean I feel like that's the word of the word of the episode word of the is day. balance because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he do a shot every time you hear it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult that to is play the that. official noco cinema drinking game yeah, yeah. And, and it's difficult to play a character like that that is um so realistic because he's not just a goofball he's also very you know he's serious and and intimate with his wife but he is also one of the guys he just felt like someone i could meet on the street like i might walk into a bar and meet this dude jack and this is his wife gold like they felt and someone you want to you want to exactly. hang out with yeah. it's affirming to hear that he's a director too because that's sort of the role that he plays within the characters is he's sort of like it's his place he's mm-hmm. it's his father's place yep. he's taking them out to the disc golf course and the other people are just sort of you know along for the ride conducting yep. the drama that uh yes. that goes on <laughs> when things were sort of in limbo with the film to digital switch you went to you were a teacher mm-hmm. you are a teacher uh, of film history if i remember correctly yes. and you're also a film critic so those sorts of things like those things when you're critiquing film and when you're looking at film history those things are sort of set in stone it's sort of a closed system right mm-hmm. but you're also a filmmaker and so in order to make a film it has to come from this like totally open system and yeah like the just pure creation basically so what I, i'm interested to hear about your thought process while you're making a movie with that background of looking at things that have already been made and having that like closed system mentality mm-hmm. when you're doing all of those other things how does that inform your writing or does it inform your writing process or is it something completely separate that's actually a damn good question um it i feel like i'm utilizing a different part of my brain to be honest with you because yeah when you're writing criticism and by the way i don't really consider myself a a film critic okay but um you know, I mean, I'll, I'll blog for Time Out Chicago. Sure. And write for Cinephile. Oh, no. Time Out Chicago, a well-respected <laughs> publication. He's no critic. He's not a critic. Well, you know, there are people who do it full. I'm friends with critics who write full <laughs> time. Sure. And, you know, I'm in awe of what they and, – and they work so hard, you know, because writing is so hard. I, I just don't want to put myself in that category. But um, – but yeah, when when you write, it's like you labor over when you write criticism, you labor over every word. You want everything to count. And it's so it's so hard to write that kind of um, criticism. So I, I have so much respect for film critics because I know how hard it is to write like that. And same thing with teaching. It's sort of like it's a, like you say, it's a closed system. You know, you're explaining the meaning of something um you're you're talking about history you're talking about definitions but then i think in order to be a you know in order to create fiction when i say i use a different part of my brain it's almost like um it's more intuitive you know there's nothing academic about writing a screenplay it's like you have to get into a zone where you're just um you're just sort of going with the flow you know you're you're sort of listening to some inner voice and just letting it flow um and then and it's almost like you know you're in a state of of pure inspiration and you're just kind of um not you're not thinking about what every word means you know you're just letting it come through you and you have to kind of trust your instincts more so to me they're very separate um 
very separate activities. That's interesting. I because when I was when I, we were preparing for the interview, I was curious about that because I. I would imagine that it would be difficult to not look at it from a critical. Pr- I mean, everybody, every writer is their own worst critic yeah. or whatever. But having an, like an actual background doing it with other people's work, it was something that definitely it was interesting to me to hear about. Well, I do. I do look at it that way after the fact like sure. now that it's done and i'm talking to you guys and now i'm like a yeah. co- i'm a co-critic yeah. <laughs> yeah like you handed it off to the editor and you're yeah. like oh damn <laughs> and also you know now i see things in it that i wasn't aware of at the time you know but that doesn't mean that i wasn't aware of it on some subconscious level at the time you know what i mean yeah um there's no wrong way to to look at it now well with mercury and retrograde being finished is there anything you'd go back and change? Something that you wish you had included in the final cut? Maybe some character stuff that you would have, uh, I don't know, updated or moved around? Yeah, let's do a retrospective of retrograde. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, no. Because, you know, no movie is perfect. Um, but even the imperfections, you know, I've grown to embrace. Um, if there's anything that, that I feel truly doesn't work, it ends up on the cutting room floor. Um, but as far as small imperfections go, I don't really care. You know, um, I feel like every movie, <clears throat> when it's done, I feel like it had to be that way. Um, this movie, you know, if I had cast different actors, it would be a totally different movie. Mm-hmm. You know, the character of Isabel was actually written for an American actress. And when I, I actually saw a French movie called um, Malgré la Nuit, which Roxanne was in not too long ago, and it's one of my favorite movies of recent years. And it was the process of watching that movie Actually, just a few months before we started shooting, I said to myself, this is what I want this yeah. character to look like, <laughs> you know, and this is what I want her to act like. Sure. So I contacted her agent after that and sent him the script and he sent it to her. And then she got in touch with me and said she was interested in doing it. And then I rewrote it to make her French. So um, this is all kind of a roundabout way of saying that I always feel like it's it's kind of just the way it was meant to be you know and there's no point in rethinking how how else it could have been yeah otherwise i mean it would drive anyone crazy just right. trying to think all oh, these possibilities uh i i can't hearing that 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 was not the part was not written for her that's wild because she really gets into it and yeah. she really becomes that she's mean i, yeah, I, mean, I couldn't imagine is. anyone else the, the scene when they're at uh the coffee shop and they're talking about tipping oh I yeah like, oh my god she probably <laughs> thinks you're a bitch (laughs) oh my god no and and that's in the script and you know the funny thing is she said to me the first time i talked to her she said she said do you want me to play this as an american because she has a voice coach in la or dialect coach that she you know works with and her accent is pretty slight i mean i think she could have done an american accent had she wanted to but she said to me i think this character should be french because she goes this is the way french people are oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's and, the thing it made sense it brought in this kind of yeah. french maybe parisian high society sensibility and, that, and that's why i say it is the way it was meant to be she actually even said um this character is more like me than any character i've ever played she goes this character is very blunt and very un-pc and this is the way i am wow. so you know and was, it worked and it works making that 
relationship believable having two people really kind of hate each other yeah and really get in. uh richard was really especially the discs off the disc golf <laughs> oh thing. yeah oh my god and it, just the outfit he's wearing with oh. like the bandana on i was like this is the kind of guy that plays disc golf for real <laughs> yeah for real <laughs> the knee-high socks exactly and the glove yeah on yeah. One oh yeah well, that quick shot of him just like <laughs> i can't remember what he says but he like yeah slams his fist into his hand uh, and it was a like, really trustworthy desk it's like yeah. oh i uh, i love the show and tell the show not tell with all of those characters they all just sort of ooze themselves Mm-hmm. Um, with with setting this in Chicago, you spent you've spent a ton of time in Chicago. Now you are a Chicagoan. You're not you're not from Chicago. You're from North Carolina originally. Yeah. Uh, was it what was it like adopting Chicago as your your place, your your home? Now, that's a good question too. It happens slowly over time. I mean, I don't know where you guys are from originally. Suburbs. But, yeah. <laughs> so you're from here yeah. too. Well, um, you know. I moved here from Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. I was originally going to DePaul, and for a long time, you know, I would go home for br- Christmas break and summer break. I think the first, you know, two years I was up here, I, I went home for a lengthy time during during summer, and I would call North Carolina home. And then, uh, you know, over the years, it's like you you go home less and less, and then all of a sudden, you start using the word home to describe, you know. The Chicago, Chicago, the new place mm-hmm. instead of the old place. And do you think that it was a uh, uh, cre- uh, coming to Chicago? We talked with uh, Gordon McAlpin, who's an animator, and um, he lived in Chicago for a time. I want to say about ten tenish years. Yeah, and he said for him that coming to Chicago was sort of this creative renaissance, where he was from downstate and came here and this was really where his career doing these creative things started was that similar for you was it a critical you know and creative kick in the butt to get you doing what you want to do 110 percent. because i never even thought about filmmaking before i moved here i moved here to study acting at depaul originally Mm. and i was at depaul for two years in a fine acting school indeed absolutely and then (laughs) I, i dropped out and then i ended up going to columbia for film school and so it was really the the experience of living here and you know going to the music box and the siskel center which at that time was not called the siskel center it was just the the film center (laughs) yeah in the back of the art institute and uh, and then reading uh you know film criticism in the chicago reader discovering jonathan rosenbaum uh for the first time and reading his reviews religiously every week and then just kind of you know going deeper and deeper into discovering film history um yeah, it would have never happened had I not moved to Chicago. What does Chicago as a film city say to you? Because when we think film, we think Hollywood, L.A., New York, even internationally, London. Some people might put that above Chicago. But uh, this is a place where a lot of people are making films, a, lot, a place where a lot of people are talking about films. What does the personality of Chicago as a film city say to you? That's another great question. You know, <laughs> if you want to be an independent filmmaker which most people do right most people who go to film school wherever you go you you assume that's how you're going to make your first film even if you want to work in hollywood you're going to look at your independent film as a calling card i mean you're you're you can do that anywhere do you know what I mean? And I think it's insane that so many people are moving to L.A., especially all of these Columbia College graduates, <laughs> thinking that they're going to end up directing because they live in L.A. Right. Right. It's crazy. And I'll tell you something. 
I know people, I've had former students, they graduate from Columbia, they move to LA, and what they end up doing out there is make independent films <laughs> that are financed by their parents and friends, friends. from the Midwest. Yeah, <laughs> There's a lot Stop. of people here who want to see people make movies, I guess. <laughs> Stop going out there and spending your money and then coming back home when it doesn't work out. Mm. I mean, you know, stay here. Um, I love Chicago. You know, my first film, Cool Apocalypse, is a love letter to the city, Mm -hmm. the real city, not the touristy parts of the city. You don't see any skyscrapers in that film, but I think it, you know, I tried to make it capture you know the you know the the truth of what it's like to live and work on the north side mm-hmm. you know to take the l to work in the morning and you know go out to a diner on your lunch break and so on and so forth and um you know even mercury we shot 8 days in michigan and 4 in chicago uh, I'll tell you another little secret. Mm. The bar scene at the end was shot in Chicago in Rogers Park, oh, even wait. though it takes place in. Wait, Michigan. where was it shot? It was shot at the Red Line Tap. Oh, you are kidding no. me! And then, <laughs> oh, and that whole God. scene is red too. That's yes. a great little yes. wait, wing so, there. Okay, I gotta hold on. Let's let's talk wait. about this. So the Red Line Tap that is that was a bar that I went to fer- semi frequently, um, right around the corner from the Heartland Cafe. Yes, and uh, owned by the same owner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen people. Play- they, you're telling me that was the Red Line that, Tap? Yes, I think he is. Oh my God! <laughs> and by the way, I'm very very pleased that you did not recognize it <laughs> yeah i mean you you made it look like i mean and it's a it's a bar that definitely it's very classical chicago bar where it's no frills it's very much for the community mm-hmm. all about your locals and everything like that but you made it look like if i were in michigan and i was going to just some towny bar that's yeah. you really dressed it up wow yeah. that is blowing my mind <laughs> yeah. freaking out. Um, he's freaking out yeah but, it is it is fantastic but to answer, answer your question about chicago filmmaking i mean i love this city i'm never gonna move and i hope to keep shooting films here you know as long as i'm making films because uh this is a great place i mean there are a lot of incredible filmmakers here and um we have a nice community going on you know there's an incredible if you're looking for crew members you know there's such a wide array of you know cinematographers you can choose from the acting talent is unbelievable you know to for me to be able to work with people from steppenwolf and the goodman you know um it's just it's it's an amazing city for film production and um i hope i I feel like we're almost on the verge of a kind of chicago new wave to be honest with you um i think joe swanberg you know is the one who gets um all of the press and he's the most kind of well-known um because he's he's got the widest distribution but there's so many wonderful filmmakers here and i think um you know, I hope everybody stays here and I hope the scene just continues to grow. And if I can contribute to that in any kind of small way, that would make me very happy because I love Chicago and I love cinema. And I want to feel like we live in a place that has a healthy film culture. Yeah. And I mean, you are contributing in many ways. And I think that that's uh, an acute reading right there is that things have definitely shifted. Uh, the more and more I, we look into it, there's just more events. Yeah. There's more people mm-hmm. raising money. There's more screenings. There's more things that are uh, that are so quintessentially Chicago in terms of 
very grassroots, mm-hmm. lots of free screenings because cinema is for everybody. And I, I believe that that is the manif- you know, the basic manifesto of Chicago cinema is that cinema is for everybody. You can make cinema. Doesn't really matter when or how. Just know that you can do it here and you'll find a, a warm community to do it in. Um, before we go, I want to ask about teaching film history to this new set of minds that want to learn about cinema and this art. Um, what are, what's it like teaching film history to the next generation? I love teaching film history and I will do it forever. Even if I don't have to, <laughs> yeah. you'll be because, on the street being like free lessons. <laughs> so what, do you, know, what do you know about Godard? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do show a lot of good art too. <laughs> oh, he's fantastic. So, you know, um, it, it's amazing to me how open-minded, you know, first and second year college students are when it comes to being exposed to the kind of films they've because most most of my students, you know, they've they've only they're only familiar with recent American films because sure. that's what they're raised on. Especially, you know, I teach at a couple schools in the suburbs um, in addition to Harold Washington, and you know, they they just know Hollywood and that's it. But um, they're very open-minded and very attentive if they're properly introduced. You know, I always start with silent comedy. If I'm teaching a, a history class, I always start with either Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. Naturally, yeah. And it just blows their minds. You know, I mean, every every time the response is overwhelmingly positive and the students always say, I can't believe that something that old, you know, can be that funny. Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought I was going to be bored and that's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. So, as long as I'm getting that kind of response, you know, I'll never quit teaching. And I think, you know, there have been a lot of think pieces recently where sure. people are saying millennials don't <laughs> care about classic film. <laughs> and the truth is, it's, you know, just because they haven't seen it. You know, right. they're, they're not going to be interested in it by surfing through Netflix. No one's going to choose to watch, you know, um, a movie that came out, you know, before their grandparents were born. Uh, right. Unless they're they're properly introduced so as a teacher you know that's a role i can fulfill and i can do it with passion Mm -hmm. and so that's the whole reason why i teach it's not for the paycheck i do it because i want to transfer not only my knowledge about film history but you know my passion for it there was was there a particular film that was your introduction to getting into film history um Probably, uh, you know, there were a couple Alfred Hitchcock Psycho. I was 10 years old and I saw it on regular television. <laughs> and then uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah. Without a doubt. My dad showed that to me when I was 10. And Ripe age for, yeah. for Clint Eastwood. Both 10. Ripe age and the right age. Yeah. yeah there you I go. mean, That's you know, th- those, are, those were the films that really showed me what a director does. It's a bit of a rite of passage. Is that how they pronounce it? Yeah. <laughs> In film school, it's pronounced passage. Passage. Jesus. <laughs> All right. Well, again, uh, we you are going to be able to see the fantastic Mercury in Retrograde over at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Uh, those screenings are going to be on Friday, February 16th. That's at 8.15. Monday, February 19th at 7.45. And then Wednesday, February 21st, also at 7.45. Each one of those is going to be accompanied by a conversation with Michael. So you'll get to meet Michael if well, you'll at least get to listen to Michael 
You know, maybe you're not going to be too busy, are you, to no, mingle I, with the riffraff? <laughs> I, I will be there for all three screenings. And I also want to say there different members of the cast and crew will be there each night. So depending on when you come, you'll get something different. Or see it three times and get the full experience. <laughs> the full experience, people. Um, so you'll get a chance to see Michael and some of the cast uh, and talk. You know, you get to listen to people such as um, Matt Fagerholm, who we mentioned earlier from RogerEbert.com. He's going to be moderating a, a screening. David J. Fowley and also Ian Simmons. You'll get to see all that over at the Gene Siskel Film Center. Uh, Michael, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. All right. This has been No Coast Cinema here on WGN+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I'm Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And we will see you all next week. Next week.